Lord, you are an inexhaustible source of life and joy. And that's why it's called eternal life. We just pray as we look into your word today, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed with all that we have in you. That you would cause us to rejoice in you and such a great salvation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As you look up here at the slide, you'll see that I actually changed the title from what is written in the bulletin. And that is because as I looked at this text and meditated on it, there was much exalting and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. In fact, Paul uses that word three times in speaking of all that we have in the gospel. That word, by the way, rejoice, can also be translated to boast or to glory. And so we have a lot to rejoice in, in all that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The diamond of the gospel shines most brightly against the black backdrop of our sin and who we really are without Christ. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, we see the need for justification. We see the need for justification. And what is justification? Well, justification is a one-time legal declaration by God that a believer is righteous. Now, that's based on Jesus' perfect life and his work on the cross. This cannot be reversed, and it has continuing results that change our relationship with God and brings us through all the trials and tribulations of this life, and it brings us all the way to glory. And so that's basically a summation of what we're going to talk about today. Now, the, the dark backdrop of our sin has been laid out. If you've read the book of Romans, the first chapter, really what Paul is saying that all the Gentile nations with the clear revelation of God that they do have in nature, that they've suppressed that truth of God in unrighteousness, that they've exchanged the glory of God for idolatry. And because of that, God's wrath abides upon them. And then in chapter 2 of the book of Romans, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish people and self-righteous religious people. And he asks the question, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? And of course, the answer is no. And so Paul lays out the Jews, even though they have the revelation of God and the law, and the prophets, but because they do the same things that the Gentiles do, that they are still under the wrath of God. And so then you get to chapter 3, and it's as if Paul throws his hands in the air and he says, what can we say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, but there's a turning point halfway through chapter 3 where we see that we can be justified by faith apart from works, that God is propitiated, that he's satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection of the dead 
so that we can have new life. And then you get to chapter 4, and we see that the justification has always been by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. In fact, we find out that he's the prototype of what faith really is, and that all who believe now are sons of Abraham. We're like Abraham. And so we've been declared righteous because of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we've repented of our sin and we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a one-time event, like we said, that happened in the past when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe this morning you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I want to find out what these Christians are all about, what they believe. Well, listen in carefully. This is for everybody. And so justification is a one-time event that happened in the past, having believed. And so let's look at our text. The first blessing of our justification or result of our justification is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just this, that the wrath that was laid out in the first two and a half chapters is no longer against us, right? That's been removed. God was at one time at war with us, really. And what the text is saying, this is not saying that we have like a peace of mind, although that it results in a peace of mind, knowing that God is no longer at war with us, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war has ceased. We've gone from being his enemy, and as James says, to being his friend. Isn't that amazing to think about that? That we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what H.A. Ironside said about it. He said, peace as used here is not a state of mind or heart. It is a prevailing condition between two who were once alienated. Sin had disturbed the relations of creature and creator. A breach had come in which man could not mend, but peace has been made by the blood of Christ's cross. There is no longer a barrier. Peace with God is now an abiding state in which every believer enters. The sin question has been settled. Isn't that good news? When I think about the struggles of sin, and I, I know sometimes, you know, I wonder if you pray like this, Lord, it'll be nice when I don't have to struggle with sin anymore, right? But we can have that peace with God, knowing that our sins have been judged already. We have peace. Jesus stood in the way of the wrath of God. And so because of that, we should have peace of mind. We should have the peace of God that passes all understanding. All right, so the second blessing of our justification that we're going to see here is that we have 
access to abiding grace. We have access to abiding grace. And that is uh, Romans 2a. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, when I think of access with God, just think about what happened in the garden, right? We fell into sin. We were kicked out of the presence of God. Flaming sword, no access to God. No way back. Think about Mount Sinai with the stones put around the mountain as a border. And the children of Israel told, you can't pass that border or you're going you're gonna to die. And God begins to speak and the mountain thunders and the earth quakes. And the people say, Moses, don't let God speak anymore. You speak for him. As a media, there's, there's a separation. There is no access. It makes me think of the Old Testament sacrifices. And a lot of people say that the temple is probably shaped like the Garden of Eden, right? And, and that separation that's there, the curtain in the temple, right? It's like a six-foot-thick curtain in the temple that no one could pass except for the high priest once a year. And they put bells around his waist so they can hear that he's still moving around there. He hadn't dropped dead in the presence of God. And he goes in once a year and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat to make a temporary covering, to make an atonement for their sin until the next year. It's temporary. But this text says we have access with God. We have access into the grace in which we stand, but that's access to God. We were kicked out of the presence of God, and Jesus brings us back into the very presence of God, and he makes a sacrifice once for all. There's no other need for another sacrifice because God is satisfied. He's propitiated, and we can enter in any time that we want. In Ephesians, it says we are seated with him in heavenly places, present tense. Do you guys feel like you're seated with Jesus in heavenly places? Well, that's our position, right? That's our position. We have access to God, and we stand in abiding grace. We were once under the wrath of God, right? But having been justified, we have peace with God. And having peace with God, we've entered into grace. And now we stand in this life in grace. Isn't that good news? The gospel, we need the gospel every day. We're standing in grace every day as God is transforming our very lives as we we'll see as we continue in this text. And so justification is something that happened in the past. Peace with God and access to God are present tense realities, and they also can't be changed. See how good the good news is? I mean, it's like drinking off a fire hydrant this week, meditating on it. We have access to God. We can boldly come before 
the throne of grace. I hope you make use of that, that privilege, that blessing that we have. All right. The third blessing of our justification. The third blessing of our justification. Romans 2b is that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what the text says. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a future reality. That's a sure reality. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now in the world, a lot of times we hope for things. I hope this happens. I hope, I hope that happens. That's not this kind of hope. This is a hope that will happen. Like we said, it cannot be reversed. It's going to happen. We're going to rejoice. Well, we rejoice now in the hope, future, of the glory of God. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Right? We were separated from God. He saved us, put his spirit inside of us. But our flesh is that place where we're still having a war going on, right? But that's, that's going to change because we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's going to be no more wrestling with sin one day. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face, right? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you desire to see the Lord? Do you just want to hold on to everything you have? In this world, one of my pastors used to say, we spend all our time investing in the Motel 6 when we should be investing in glory, investing in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where is your heart this morning? Is it here? Is it here? The next biggest video game that comes out, shooting the next big buck. Those are good things, but that's not our hope, right? Getting a bigger house. I mean, it's a good gift from God, but it's not our hope. Our hope is in Him. Think about the unbelievers. Think about their hope. I mean, how do they make it through this world? If they don't have a hope like we have, right? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have a hope of transformation, as I've already mentioned. Philippians 3, beginning to read at verse 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even to subject all things to himself. So not only are we going to be changed, like we already stated, but everything's going to be. The whole creation groans, right? There's going to be a changing of the whole of creation. We're going to be fit for glory, and we're going to be in glory. Isn't that good news? Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Our lives aren't tied up in this age. They're tied up in the next age. We live for glory. We live for heaven. We live to see our Savior. And that should change the way we live. It should change the way that we see everything. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we have more cause for rejoicing. Here's the second time that the word rejoice is going to be used, right? And it says here in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Who rejoices in their sufferings? How many of you wake up, you know, and say, goody, I'm going to suffer today? Who does that? Well, the man who wrote this letter, he, he boasted in his his sufferings. He says about his Christian walk, his witness for the gospel. And by the way, I mean, we suffer many different ways in this life, but Paul was suffering for the gospel. He was suffering for the gospel. And I'm not trying to diminish any other kinds of sufferings, but he was suffering for the gospel. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from, uh, from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger everywhere he went. He was in danger. He was suffering in this world. You know, in the world we live in now, it's changing. It's not as easy to be a Christian anymore. If you make your faith vocal, you will suffer for the gospel. You will suffer, which begs the question, how many of you have ever been rejected for the gospel? And if you haven't been rejected for the gospel, why? I mean, what kind of faith do you have? What kind of good news do you have that you have the greatest message ever given among men and you never tell anybody? You just sit there on a pew, soak in, make your head real big, right? But you never tell anyone. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I know when I see young converts, most of the time, they can't stop telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And sometimes when we get older in the faith, we kind of lull and we, we get so we're not as excited about the Lord. And so we, we don't share our faith like we ought to, right? We need to meditate on all these precious promises and may the gospel overflow out of our lives to others that they might see the truth of the gospel so why should we rejoice in our sufferings? Why should we do that? Because suffering is the road to glory. That's why. 
Paul put it this way in Romans 8, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Paul continues further down. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then, you know, in, in Romans 8, he speaks about our suffering again. Uh, when he says that the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be measured against the, the glory that's going to be revealed. It's like a scale, right? The glory of God and our sufferings. The glory is so weighty that it, our sufferings just fly off that scale. It's beyond compare, right? And so know this morning, if you're suffering, that God has a purpose in that. I want to say this, that suffering saints make good witnesses. Suffering saints, they're good witnesses. I've seen examples of this in my own life. I think of Miss Mona Jones. When I walked into 4C Bible Church in 1988, I was a mess. Miss Mona Jones getting up there and singing. Had no hair on her head. Lost all her hair and suffered. I've seen this woman suffer even to this day. But she stood up there and she said, I want to thank God for his faith. And I was a non-believer. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, he's God. He's the God that's with people even in suffering. The glory of God was shining on his life. Years later, she became part of my fellowship group. And she suffered with so many. She's still suffering with things. And she never complained. She's looking forward to the glory of God. And then another example I've seen of this, my own mom. She came to a point in her life where she was having panic attacks. And it threw everything off in her whole family. She was no longer stable. And she got hooked up with Calverton Baptist Church. And she started hearing the gospel, and she got convicted of her sin. And she repented, and she was made new inside. All of a sudden, all her fears, her anxiety were no longer in control of her, and her identity was in Jesus Christ. And she would tell others about him. In fact, she told it to me. I came home. I was a mess, having been out acting like a lunatic, and I'm riding with my mom in her car, and she's playing worship music. And I'm like, what is that music? It's terrible. And she goes, I'm praising Jesus. And she began to tell me about him and how he changed her life. And then she said, Paul, will you come to church with me? I want to show off my marine son. She's sneaky. <laughs> And got me to go in there to the church. And I didn't get saved then, but I, I did think about it when I was there. And she was a powerful witness to me. And so she passed away just about a month ago. And we go up there and visit her. And I'm like, Mom, do your therapy. Eat. We don't want to lose you. And she's like, I'm, I don't want to stay here. She goes, I want to go be with Jesus. That's better. That's better than being here, right? 
And so I saw the reality of what we're reading here in my mom's life. And so I want to challenge the young people. Look at the older saints that have gone before you. Watch their lives. Watch them suffer. Watch them be transformed by God's grace and follow their examples. That's why it's good to have a church with mixed ages. Not everyone's young. That's actually why it's good to go to sometimes fellowship groups with mixed ages because you'll hear wisdom from people that have gone through the things that you're going to go through. If you're always around young people, you're not going to hear that wisdom, right? You're not going to see them being transformed in their real life right before your eyes to glory, right? And so why, why, do, we, uh, why do we suffer? Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Because our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. Speaking of hope, I'm going to highlight that one thing here. John Stott says this, perseverance produces character. Doikami is the quality of a person who has been tested and has passed the test. It is a mature character, the temper of a veteran as opposed to the raw recruit. So raw recruits need to be around veterans. <laughs> I learned in the Marine Corps from the veterans. Then the last link of the chain is that character produces hope. Perhaps because the God who is developing our character is present and can be relied on for the future, too. So it produces hope. When we go through trials and tribulation, it intensifies our hope of glory. Think about it. When have you grown the most? When you were munching in the pasture or when you were suffering, going through hard times? Now, they're both good places to be, but God uses suffering to bring about glory. So the fifth result of our justification is the love of God has been poured into our hearts. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit, right? The love of God has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It says here in the beginning to read, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When did he do this? When did he show us this great love? When did he pour this great love in our hearts? Verse 6, for while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But here's the contrast here, right? But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he died for us when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. He came and died for us. So he didn't look down and say, oh, this person is so wonderful. I'm going to save them, right? No. It was all of grace, all of mercy, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
How did he show us this love? Well, he showed it in the cross, and we're going to see further here. As we look at the sixth blessing of our justification, we've been reconciled to God, and he has saved us from future wrath. You know, when Paul is speaking in Romans 1, 18-32, he's talking about the wrath of God is presently on all humanity. That's the state of humanity. The wrath of God is on them. But as soon as you become a believer, you're not under that wrath anymore like we already talked about. We have peace with God. But there's also a future wrath to come when we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we're only going to be judged on our good works. We're not going to be judged like the non-believing world. Listen to what it says in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, declared righteous, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the future wrath. That's a future wrath at the judgment when Jesus comes back. His people will not face this wrath. It made me think about the martyrs of history. You know, like, for example, Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was, it's said that he was a disciple of the apostle, the apostle John. And uh, when they took him and tied him to the stake, they recorded his prayer. And it begins with him saying, I thank God that you have counted me worthy of this hour. You think you would pray like that if you were nailed to a stake and they're going to set light to you? Yeah, we should think about this. What if God asked me to suffer in that way? I'm not saying he's going to ask everyone to do that, but there's an appointed number of martyrs um, that he calls to suffer in that way. Right? He said, I thank God that you've counted me worthy of this hour. How could he pray like that? In contrast, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't think it had anything to do with, uh, you know, Polycarp has more boldness than Jesus. Or, but here's the thing. Was Polycarp going to be se uh, separated from God when he died? Was he? No. But Jesus, when he's on that cross, what happens? Yes, he physically dies. He goes to the cross. He's scourged, a nail, nails and crown of thorns. But he's going to be separated from his father for the first time in eternity. That's why he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the father turned his face away from the Son. And because he was separated from God, his people never can be separated from God. And not only that, but Polycarp wasn't going to receive the wrath of God. All the weight of all the sin of all the world, of all his people, was laid upon him. And he became accursed on the cross. God poured out his just wrath his anger and indignation towards sin on Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
He suffered in our place. And he satisfied the wrath of God. And that's why Christians went to martyrdom singing in the flames because they knew they wouldn't face the wrath of God, but they would instead, it would be a promotion to glory. Isn't this good news? I hope that you're encouraged this morning about all that we have in him because it is caused, it's cause for rejoicing. And that's what it says. This is like from the harder thing to the easier thing. It's kind of a way they used to illustrate things in Hebrew literature. It says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See that? There's a contrast there. And so, verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, when we're baptized, we show that we died with Christ. Because it really happened. We died with him. And then when we come up out of that water, it's like we came back to life with Christ. That's what that's illustrating. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. And that's cause for rejoicing. That's why we should rejoice. It says further, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And so there's a lot of rejoicing going on in this passage about all that we have in Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith. And so as you go home this morning, what can you take home with you? What can you take home with, with you? Just thinking about the fact that we have access to God and we can boldly go to the throne of grace. The author of Hebrews put it this way, since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. As you're going through your life, facing the trials and tribulations of life, bring it all before the Lord because you have access to him. Bring it all before him. And so he'll transform your life as you go to him. Number two, take this home with you. We know that God has an end in our suffering and that end is glory. That end is glory. So if you're suffering, as I've already mentioned, remember God is at work in your life. You know, there's all kinds of sufferings that can come to our lives. We can get sick, like my mom did. You could be persecuted for the gospel. That's a way that that could happen. There's all kinds of ways that you can suffer. But I, I'm telling you, your suffering is for the purpose of God transforming your life to his glory. 
we are, this is my favorite verse. I preach it almost every time I preach. I didn't do it first service. But we all with unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. Moses had fading glory. That's why he covered his face in the old covenant. We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory. Oh, we're being transformed in the same image. The same image. The image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. That's irreversible. You have to work that out in this real life. Because, you know, there are false believers in the church. You read the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation. Every one of them ends with he who overcomes, he who conquers, because we have to live it out in a real life. Suffering exposes the frauds. It either purifies or exposes the frauds. I run into people and they go, I used to be a Christian. I'm like, I don't think you used to be a Christian. That cannot be reversed. I think, you know, the cares of this world and all these other things revealed who you really were. I don't say it exactly that way, but that's what happens. But we as the people of God know that suffering has an end, and it's the glory of God. Third thing, keep our eyes on future glory. Keep our eyes on seeing Jesus when we'll be in his immediate presence. You know, over and over again, the apostles wrote to churches telling them to look to Jesus. He's coming. And they were being afflicted and suffering. Over and over again, he said that. When we'll be in his immediate presence and be glorified, looking to the point when we're going to be glorified helps us live our lives in the present. I think Jonathan Edwards said, stamp eternity on your eyeballs. Live for glory. And then when that happens, we're going to be transformed. I know I read this verse already, but I want to end with it. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So looking forward to seeing Jesus is a purifying hope. So you should be looking into that and wanting it to come, hastening the day that we see our Savior and we glorify him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I thank you that for those you foreknew, these you also predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. We're the firstborn of many brethren. And those whom you predestined, these you also called. And those you called, these you also justified. And those you justified, these you also glorified. Lord, thank you for that unbreakable chain of truth from eternity past to glory. The blessings of our justification cause us to exalt in you because the gospel brings us all the way to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.